0: good morning advent hope and happy sabbath please bow your heads with me for a word of prayer father in heaven we thank you for the opportunity we have to be together here today i pray that your spirit would come into this room that your angels would be with us that we would set aside any distractions in our mind of the cares of this life and just allow you to come into our hearts and to speak to us now this is my prayer in jesus name Amen. As Adrian was saying in his announcements, we have GYC coming up in just four days or so, and I certainly am looking forward to that. Um, It's interesting to me that this year's conference is being held in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For those of you who are Adventist history buffs, you know that Minneapolis, Minnesota is a very interesting place in the history of the Adventist church, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about that more later um, in the message today. As you see from the title, the title of this sermon is entitled Laodicea and Romans 7. And you may be wondering what the connection is between Laodicea and the message to God's people in Romans chapter 7. Before we actually get there though, I just want to take a step back and review God's leading in his church and among his people and take a look at the at the fact that we as God's people throughout history since we became a chosen group of people after 1844 have mostly been laodicean now i'm going to read a statement from life sketches page 196 we all know this says we have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the lord has led us and his teaching in our past history now what we like to do is we like to look at the way god has led us but we don't remember his teaching. Do you remember the teachings that God has given us as a people that has led us to the point that we are now? 1844, the five S doctrines. What are the five S's? Sabbath, sanctuary, state of the dead, spirit of prophecy, second coming. Now, if you forget any of those teachings and how they relate to us as a people where are you going to go in the future but we have nothing to fear for the future if we remember how god led us to those points and we with those teachings that god has given us look to the future to see where those teachings will lead us clearly god has led among his people And one of the ways that he has led us is the doctrines or the teachings of us as a people. Now, one of the problems, though, that comes with having truth, at least in in our church, has been complacency. We have these teachings that God has given us that have led us as a people to where we are today. But let me ask you a more personal question. With those teachings God has given us, how many of you are having personal Bible studies with people, sharing those teachings with those who have not a clue about any of them? Just a, a, a question to think about. If those teachings are so important and if God has clearly led us as a people to where we are now, what are we doing to share those teachings with a lost and dying world around us? That's a serious question to think about. Now, what I want to do today, I am going to take a look at the history of this church As well as the teachings so we are going to look at the history of God's leading personified in some of the stories of our pioneers and we're also going to look at the theology that forms a foundation for who we are as a people and I'm going to start by reviewing a little bit of history now In 1844, as I said, after that time, the pioneers developed these five S's. Primarily Hiram Edson was responsible for the sanctuary. Joseph Bates, through a tract from T.M. Preble, developed the Sabbath message. James and Ellen White were convinced of the Sabbath through Joseph Bates. Hiram Edson was convinced of the Sabbath from Joseph Bates. And Joseph Bates was convinced of the sanctuary by Hiram Edson. So it's kind of an interesting circle. And that all happened within five years after 1844. If you look at the pioneers that were leading God's movement after 1844, take for example James White and Joseph Bates. James White and Joseph Bates would work extra jobs and sacrificially spend any extra money that they could earn to publish literature to share with other people. Now this might hurt a little bit, but sometimes we work extra jobs to save it for retirement. Those people weren't thinking about retirement. They were thinking about translation. That was their retirement plan. Now, what often happens when you have a movement? You have pioneers that lead the way, and you have converts who come in, And they believe the message, but they don't have the same level of intensity or fervor as those who led the way. So what happens is you have people accepting the Sabbath message, the sanctuary message, the state of the dead, the spirit of prophecy, the second coming. It all makes sense. And the thing that they like is that they know the truth now, and they can still keep their job and make lots of money and come to church on Sabbath, and that's about it. And so, by the 1850s, roughly 10 years after 1844, the intensity of the movement started to lose its edge. Now, the best story that I have found that personifies how we as a people became Laodicean is... From a story about Elder J.N. Loughborough. How many of you have ever heard of J.N. Loughborough? He was one of the pioneers of our Adventist church. J.N. Loughborough became baptized into the church shortly after 1844 and received a call to become a preacher in the Seventh day Adventist movement in 1852 from Ellen White. And as the story goes, Jan Loughborough was a very successful salesman. He sold locks for windows on new houses, which I guess that was a lucrative business back in 1852, I don't know. But he was making a very nice living with the business that he had. And he had, he was newly married, and he received a call to preach. And his wife convinced him that, being called to preach wasn't such a good idea. And over the next several weeks, he struggled with the decision. And while he was struggling with the decision, he didn't make any sales. And so the money that he had saved up dwindled away and he didn't have any money left. And he still had this call to preach facing him. And his wife came to him and said hey i need some money to go buy flour at the store he gave her enough money to buy just enough to make one loaf and she didn't realize how bad their finances had become and that shocked her upset her she was crying and at at that moment elder loughborough went to his room and prayed to the lord and said lord i don't know how you're going to take care of me but i've decided i'm going to become a minister. You're speaking to me. Well, his wife went off to the store to buy that loaf of bread. And while she was gone, someone came by and said, hey, I hear you sell locks. Would, would you be interested in um, me giving you a certain sum of money so I could buy your business? And so while his wife was gone to the store, he was able to sell his business and that was the confirmation that he needed. Once he made the decision that he was going to become a minister, God gave him the confirmation. And so, with that confirmation, Elder Loughborough became one of the most powerful preachers in the Advent movement. And he was preaching, converting souls, baptizing them, bringing them into the church. And him and maybe James and Ellen White and a few other dedicated ones were doing most of the work. And. Elder Lushborough was still married to the same person that had a similar mentality. And one time they went to do a series of meetings somewhere. And at the end of the series of meetings, they were done. And the way things worked back then, there wasn't systematic benevolence with tithes the way we have it now, which is a much better system. Back then, they depended upon the members to pay them To sustain their their work And they were doing They had done a series Where the people were fairly well off They had money There was no question about it When the series was done And they got paid It was a very meager sum Not much at all It was not sacrificial giving On the part of the people That they had been ministering to And right about then Elder Loughborough's wife said That's it This is not fair why are we being called to sacrifice for god's work when nobody else is doing sacrificial work alongside with us and elder luffer was like you know it's a good point i actually have been thinking the same thing and i just i just got a letter this last week from jay and andrews in Wacon, iowa and he invited me to come do some work for a period of time in iowa let's let's take some time off from preaching and just go to iowa And so they did. So one of the most influential and powerful preachers at that time in our church left the ministry to go be a carpenter in Waukon, Iowa. Now, just to give you an idea of the significance of this, it would sort of be like one of our leading Adventist ministers that we all know. Let's say Doug Batchelor, Mark Finley, you name it, one of those types. Saying, you know what, this preaching business—it's not making enough money for me. I'm going to go, um, go work for a Wall Street stock market agency to make a million. And, and that would really be a bad witness, wouldn't it? If one of your leading ministers says this preaching business doesn't pay enough, I need to go do something else. And so that's what happened. Now, right about the same time, and I'm, I'm going to come back to Elder Loughborough right about the same time, Elder James White came to Battle Creek, and he had that sacrificial spirit of giving every extra penny he had to publishing literature. And he noticed that there were stacks and stacks of, of magazines and literature that were not going out because they didn't have the money to ship it because many of the Adventists weren't, donating their money to help pay for the distribution of the literature. And Elder White looked around and he realized there's all these people in our church and at that time one of the lucrative businesses was farming and there were farmers that had well over $10,000 in their bank account which in our day and time would probably be hundred, two hundred thousand. 200000 I don't know but it'd be worth a lot more. So there were farmers that were independently wealthy that were not giving anything And people like James White, who was barely making enough to survive, was giving every extra penny he could to the distribution of the literature. And Elder White went back and read Revelation 3, 14 through 21, and came to the conclusion, we as the Seventh-day Adventist people are Laodicea. That was the first time that... Adventists pointed to themselves and said, we are Laodicean. They had always pointed to the world outside, oh, those that don't know the truth and they think they're fine, but they're really not. Those are Laodicean, but we're fine. Now Elder White is saying, oh, we are Laodicea. Look at us. We have lost our sacrificial giving, our spirit of dedication and consecration. And so Elder White wrote a series of articles in the Review and Herald. Now if you looked at the at the demographic of the church there was maybe between 5,000 to 10,000 members at this time I don't remember the exact number but the response to his articles was overwhelming they received hundreds of letters from all around the church saying thank you elder white for writing these articles Once I read those articles, I realized that I was Laodicean, that I'm lukewarm, that I am not living the way I should be. Hundreds of letters. So a high percentage of the members actually responded to these articles. There's one interesting point though. There was one place that not one letter came from saying, thank you, Elder White, for these letters. This was so much needed. There was one place. Can you guess where that was? Wacon, iowa where elder loughborough moved and what happened ellen white had a vision in that vision she saw that elder loughborough had moved to iowa and had given up the ministry now communication was different back then it wasn't like everyone knew what everyone else was doing at at all times communication was more difficult so they didn't know that elder loughborough had left town or had left the ministry. And so they decided from the instruction of the Lord that they would go to Waucon, Iowa, and they would personally reach out to Elder Loughborough and those of the other Adventists that were living there. Now, this story really is the first Example of how God reaches out to his Laodicean people. And it's a powerful story because James and Ellen White decided to go during Christmas time of that year to walk on Iowa and they traveled all the way from Battle Creek. Now, if you think about the weather conditions between Michigan and Iowa in December, it's not the greatest. And they had to cross the Mississippi River on sleigh, on horse. And, and when they got to the Mississippi River, the Mississippi River had about a foot of water covering a sheet of ice. And they didn't know for sure if they could even cross that river. But at the risk and peril of their lives, they crossed that river because they loved those people so much. They were willing to risk their lives to go get those people who had lost the intensity and consecration that they had once had, had, and now they had become Laodicean. And so here we see an example of God's love for the Laodicean church. And if you think about it, the Laodicean message, and we're going to get into the details of it here in a few minutes, but the Laodicean message of all the messages to the seven churches is the most loving of the seven. It's probably the, the the strongest and the most difficult, but it's also the most loving. Because it's the one of seven where Jesus says, I will come into you. None of the other seven or six messages say that, but the seventh, Jesus says, I will come in. And we see this message personified in how James and Ellen White risked their lives to go retrieve Elder Loughborough. And as the story goes... They got to walk on Iowa on December 24. Elder Loughborough was standing on a ladder. He looks down and none other than James and Ellen White have just driven up to where he's at. And Ellen White looks at Elder Loughborough and says, What doest thou here, Elijah? He had nothing to say. And then she said, What doest thou here, Elijah? Elijah. Still no response. And then she said, What doest thou here, Elijah? Here was an Elijah running away from preaching the gospel to lost and dying souls. And of course, word quickly reached town. James and Ellen White are here. And you would think, Oh, great, they're here. No. Nah. It was like, Oh, <laughs> she's going to have a vision. She'll give us a testimony. We'll have to repent. But the Lord worked. And James and Ellen White gave meetings. Jan Loughborough's wife repented before he did. said, I've been a minister's wife. And I've kept my my husband from doing the work of the gospel ministry. I have been wrong. I am sorry. The next day Elder Loughborough got up before the congregation and said, I've held in my hand the hammer of a carpenter for the last time. And he came back. He repented. You may be asking yourself the question, well what was wrong with Elder Loughborough? I mean, he he was a minister, but he, he was just going to make some money so he could go back and support himself again. What was the big deal? Well he left the call that God had given him. And his example would have affected many others. Fortunately, Elder Loughborough from that time on was a faithful worker for God, had the full confidence of Ellen White. Um, He's written some good books that I would recommend that you read, Rise and Progress of the Second Advent Movement, and some others. After the 1850s, the... The initial repentance died off, and we went back to a Laodicean state. So that by the time of the 1880s, um, Ellen White would say that our preaching on the law was as dry as the hills of Gilboa. We could preach the law really well. And our ministers were known for out debating the other Ministers not of our faith, and they could prove the Ten Commandments and leave the other ministers speechless. Well, that was great, but the thing that was lacking was was the love of Christ. And one of the challenges for us as a people is to present the law of God, which is important, but in the context of the love of Christ. And in the 1880s, God sent two messengers to Minneapolis, A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner. And if you could sum up the message of Jones and Wagner, it wasn't universal justification. That's not what they were teaching. It was the matchless charms of Christ. People had lost sight of Christ's matchless charms. They could preach the law. They could prove the 2,300 days. They could tell you about the judgment, but they couldn't tell you what it was like to love Jesus. And ask yourself the question, if you're not giving Bible studies to people, you don't really seem to care about their eternal salvation. You're more concerned about passing tests and getting a good job ask yourself the question, do I really know Jesus and his matchless charms in my heart? Do I have his love in me that I can share to other people? Because many times in our experience, we have lost that first love. And in fact, Ellen White says, if if you um, have no love for lost souls, you've lost your first love. And so... That message was given. It was a wonderful message. Many accepted it, including you can read about Sutherland and McGann and the Madison College story. They accepted the message. But many didn't accept it. And so history has gone on down through time. And here we are in 2007. And just ask yourself the question, who am I? Where do I fit in God's work? Am I on fire with a passion for lost souls, or am I barely having enough time to spend time with with Jesus in the morning and the evening and just barely making it to church? Now, what is the message to Laodicea? We all know this message, but there's something that I want to Talk about today, but I hope will give you a clearer picture of why this message is sometimes difficult to give and to receive. People don't like to hear this. But by God's grace, we're going to talk about this today. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Okay, first of all, Laodicea, the word itself means a judged people. So it's a judged people receiving a message From the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This is Jesus. We know this because if you look in Revelation chapter 1, there's three titles for Jesus. He's the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. And here we see Jesus as the faithful and true witness. Now, here you have a faithful and true witness giving a testimony in time of judgment. So if you have someone who's giving a faithful and who's a faithful and true witness giving a message in time of judgment, it's a testimony in court about who he's speaking of. And he's speaking about the Laodicean church. So Jesus, who is the faithful and true witness in the time of judgment, is giving a testimony about the condition of God's last day people. So We need to listen up to see what Jesus says about us. And notice it says the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is described as the beginning of the creation of God. In other words, he is creator. So the fact that Jesus is creator comes back into play, especially during the time of judgment. And you see this in the first angel's message when the fourth commandment is linked to God as Creator. So, the Sabbath or the fourth commandment also then is linked to God as Creator in the time of judgment. So there must be something about this testimony that is related to our Sabbath experience, and we've talked about this in the past. But in Desire of Ages, page two eighty-three, Ellen White says, "In order for men to be holy, they must, or in order for men to keep the Sabbath holy, they must themselves be holy." so here you have a testimony from christ about the condition of his people and he's reminding people hey remember the sabbath that's an important thing for you to consider when you're considering holy living in the time of the judgment now as you look to revelation 3 there's one aspect that i'm going to focus on that is related to the laodicean church we of course know that we are described as being lukewarm and that he will spew us out of his mouth verse 17 says because thou sayest i am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked you know i bet elder loughborough when he went to walk on iowa didn't think that he was wretched miserable poor blind and naked And many of us here today wouldn't think of ourselves in that context. But I want to focus on one word in Revelation chapter 3.17, and that's the word wretched. I don't think any of us want to live wretched lives, do we? There's nothing worse than feeling wretched. It's perhaps the most awful feeling of just feeling that nothing is good, everything is bad, feeling wretched. And that is how we are described as a people, and yet we don't recognize it. Now, this word wretched is the Greek word talahiporos, and it's only found one other time in all of Scripture. And that one other place happens to be Romans 7. Romans Seven twenty-four. We could probably all quote this. Romans seven twenty-four. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Is that the type of person you want to be? O wretched man that I am. Now, we're not going to have time to go through all of Romans 7, and that was not my intention anyway. But Romans 7 is crucial to under, to having a proper understanding of the gospel that saves us Romans six seven and eight are really the climax of the book of Romans and the Gospel of jesus christ it 's the most theological exposition of the gospel. You get to Romans chapter six it talks about being dead to sin in verse four it talks about being buried with christ by baptism and to death that like as christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the father even so we also should walk in newness of life verse six talks about our old man being crucified with christ and all of romans six is talking about being dead to sin being servants to god not being servants to sin and then we get to romans chapter seven and here's what some people do they say well Romans chapter 6 talks about being dead to sin. Romans chapter 8 talks about being dead to sin. But that's really not what it means. You can only understand Romans 6 and Romans 8 if you understand Romans 7. And Romans 7 clearly teaches that we'll never have victory in this life. And so Romans 6 and Romans 8 can only be understood in the context of Romans 7. Well, let's see what Romans 7 actually says. Romans 7 ends with O wretched man that I am Same word as the Laodicean church In the beginning of Romans chapter 7 You have a description of a woman Who has the option of or Once she is married She is bound by the law To be married to him for as long as he lives And if she marries someone else She's called an adulteress But if her husband dies, then she's free to marry someone else. It's pretty straightforward. But notice verse 4. It says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So Romans 7, 4 is saying, Okay, if you're married to the old man you will bring forth sin. And you can see that in verse 5. If you're married to the old man, which was supposed to be crucified in Romans 6, you will bring forth sin. But if you're married to Christ, you will bring forth fruit unto life. Now here's where many Christians struggle. They take the name of Christ and say, I am a Christian. But they're still married to the old man. What do you call that? It's spiritual adultery. And that's what Romans 7 is teaching. You come down to verse 14. Verse 14 says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Do you want to be carnal, sold under sin? What's Paul saying here? paul is describing the experience of the carnal man because notice verse 15 he says for that which i do what's he talking about he's saying when i am carnal what i do i allow not for what i would that do i not but what i hate that do i now this is crucial you have to understand that paul is describing the experience of the carnal man here in romans chapter 7 Verse 14 and 15 are the two key verses that prove that the man of Romans 7 is the carnal man, that you are still married to the wrong man, not to Christ. Verse 16, If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now notice this, it says, it is no more I that do it, but sin. what's this but sin that dwelleth in me? That's the old man of sin, so it's the old man of sin that still reigns in your heart. And then you can go on down verse twenty two For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. So it's a person that loves the law of God, wants to do right. But notice verse 23. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am. Or you could say, O Laodicea. Knowing what is right desiring to do it but still being married to the old man of sin and that is how Christ describes his people in revelation 3:17 they're wretched miserable poor blind and naked same word in romans 7 as revelation 3 it's the only two places in scripture that these words are used what i find fascinating is that many people in our church today teach that the experience of Romans 7 is the converted experience on your way to heaven. Now, that teaching makes it possible for us to not recognize our true condition in God's sight. We say, yep, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I should. But that's just the way the Christian experience is. And Jesus is saying, no, you're wretched. And Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. I don't want to be like that. I want to experience victory through Jesus Christ. Now, just to show you a couple of verses to prove that being carnal is not a good thing, look at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 6. Romans 8, 6, 4, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither need can be. Verse 8, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So the man of Romans 7 is the carnal man who is in the flesh, and that is death. It cannot please God. And that's not the experience that any of us want to have. Now, the question is, what is the remedy? Well, Romans 8, 3 and 4. For the, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So we walk not after the man of Romans 7, but the man of, but rather the, after Christ, which is Romans 6 and Romans 8. And then notice Romans 8.10. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So here's the key point. When you are crucified with Christ, that's talked about in Romans 6, Galatians 2.20, you receive life from the spirit and the old man becomes dead. And that is the message to Laodicea, which is why Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Let me come into your heart. Because you're wretched. You're, you know what's right, but you're still doing the wrong thing. You haven't let me come in. How many of us, when we hear Christ knocking, let him come in? You know, I'm afraid sometimes we would be afraid if he came in that if he checked our computer, we would be embarrassed about the websites that we visit. We wouldn't want him to see those certain few websites that we go to on our computer. We'd have to hide a few magazines. We wouldn't want him to see those. That would be embarrassing. But Jesus... When he comes in, he cleans our heart. Now, in the remaining time that I have, which isn't much, and I will finish here in just a few minutes, I just want to challenge us as a group of people who know so much. We really do. We've heard a lot over the years. We know what is right. We know that that God can give us victory. How many of us on a daily basis are surrendering our lives to him and i just have a few quotes to read faith and works page 100 says god requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place and in order for man to retain justification there must be continual obedience through active of living faith that works by love and purifies the soul so daily surrender first thing in the morning you surrender your life to christ that's why paul says i die daily now admittedly this message to lay it sea and, and you know someone told me before the sermon that that when they had a proper understanding of romans 7 that that was the conversion experience in their life. and maybe there's some of you here today that haven't seen romans 7 in this way before that you thought that that was just the everyday christian experience but i'm hoping and praying that you are seeing that God has something better for us as a people than to just keep doing the things we don't want to do and not doing the things that we want to do. The body of sin can be dead through the power of Christ. Now, this sometimes is not the easiest thing. And in Revelation 3, we see that Jesus tells us to be zealous and to repent. But... People who think that they're going to heaven when they're actually not headed in the right direction sometimes don't like to hear that what they believe is actually the wrong thing and that they need to make a change in their life. And so when, you, when the Lord sends this message, we need to pray that His Spirit will soften the hearts of the receivers But in early writings, page 270, we see that this message to Laodicea is actually going to cause a shaking in our church. Because people are going to want to still have the experience of Romans 7 and get to heaven. It's easier, there's no question. I mean, if you could get to heaven and keep doing what you wanted and not surrender to Christ, I mean, that's easy. But surrendering to the Lord every day does take the power of god every day that's the only thing and so early writings page 270 i asked the meaning of the shaking i had seen and was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the laodiceans this will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth some will not bear this straight testimony they will rise up against it and this is what will cause a shaking among god's people i saw that the testimony of the true witness has not been half heeded. the solemn testimony upon which the destiny of the church hangs has been lightly esteemed if not entirely disregarded this testimony must work deep repentance all who truly receive it will obey it and be purified you remember jan loughborough He repented when he received the message of Laodicea. And I would dare say that a majority of us here today, if not all of us, and I'm preaching to myself, by the way, we need to repent of our Laodicean stupor. We always hear this Laodicean message, but... If J. N. Loughborough was Laodicean for leaving the gospel ministry to make a a nice, comfortable living, and and by the way, he didn't apostatize from the church. It wasn't like he threw out the fundamental beliefs. He was still going to church on Sabbath. He probably went to prayer meeting. He was probably having daily devotions. But he was Laodicean. He, He had lost that spirit of giving everything in his life and laying it on the line Just like James White and Joseph Bates were doing, every extra penny they had, they put into the literature. Jan Luffer was saving up for retirement. And most of us today, we think about our career and our retirement, but we don't think about translation. And when we have a group of people who are not at all concerned about retirement, but are most concerned about translation, because they have finally come to understand the matchless charms of Christ. That when you let Jesus, who stands at the door and not, come in, that you will have everything that Jesus offers. Sure, he'll clean up your life. You know, He'll probably get rid of some of those movies that you shouldn't be watching and some of those clothes you shouldn't be wearing. But he will also change your attitude. He's going to give you a new heart. And people will want to be around you. And when he comes into your heart, you'll have a desire to save others. You'll want to be giving Bible studies. It's not going to be a chore to, oh, man, I have to give a Bible study. Ugh. That means I'll have to study. Ugh. We should know what we believe and be excited about sharing it. Amen. Now, I promise that I'm going to wrap up here. Um, lift him up, page 375. Individuals are tested and proved a length of time to see if they will sacrifice their idols and heed the counsel of the true witness. Those who come up to every point and stand every test and overcome, be the price what it may, have heeded the counsel of the true witness, and they will receive the latter rain and thus be fitted for translation. That's the experience I want to have, amen? And if you look at at God's church today, certainly there has been a revival in the last few years GYC is happening in four days of all places in Minneapolis which was probably the 1888 general conference in Minneapolis was probably our last significant chance to see Jesus come and now here we are again we're going back to Minneapolis now I don't know if this year's GYC has the same significance but I pray it does And I pray that it will accomplish what the last Minneapolis meeting did not. And if you look at what's happening in God's church today, I really believe that we are at a moment of opportunity. The revival among young people who are interested in serious biblical Adventism is astonishing, really. I mean, when I came here to Loma Linda in 2000, there was nothing like what we have here today. And if you look at um, GYC, that wasn't even in existence when I came here in 2000. Um, We have Southwest Youth Conference now. There's other youth conferences all over the country. There's things happening in Europe and other parts of the world. So the Holy Spirit is moving. But he's looking for a group of people that will have a proper understanding of the matchless charms of Christ, that love Jesus with all their hearts, people who, when they receive A test on one point, they accept it. Then when they get to the next point, they accept it and to the next point. They don't stop at one point or the next point. They they keep going until they've passed every test. And that's where I believe we are today. We are on the verge of seeing Jesus come in our lifetime. And I pray that when the history is written of the early 2000s that it won't be a chapter in heaven entitled what might have been you can read testimonies volume 8 pages 104 to 106 where ellen white describes the experience of the 1901 general conference of what could have happened if people had received the message the laodicean message from the true witness and i don't have time to read that but I pray that the history of the people in our generation, which I pray is the final generation, will be described in verse 21 of Revelation chapter 3. This is the last, one of the last things Jesus says to his last day church. To him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. It's kind of ironic that the judgment hour people, when they overcome, they get to sit on the throne from which Christ judged himself. What an honor and what a privilege. And I can tell you that there's nothing in this life that is worth more than that. None of our favorite idols that we hang on to, none of our careers, anything can surpass overcoming even as Jesus overcame. And so I just want to make a challenge and a small appeal. If there's anyone here today that's tired of having the wretched experience of Romans 7, of doing the things that you don't want to do even though you know they're wrong, and not doing the things that you know you should be doing, such as soul-winning evangelism, giving everything to God. If you want to overcome that experience, to be zealous and repent, I invite you to stand with me as we have prayer. Father in heaven, you see the people who are standing today. And each one of us here, at least at one point in our life, if not now, has been Laodicean. We have had that wretched experience of doing those things that we know we don't want to do, but we do it anyway because we're still married to the, the old man of sin. And I pray, Lord, that we would be crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and that we can walk in newness of life with Christ. So that when Jesus looks down upon us and gives a faithful and true testimony of our experience, he will say, they are overcomers. They overcame just like I did. So I pray, Lord, that as we are in this period of opportunity of seeing Jesus come in our lifetime, that we would surrender everything, that we would heed the counsel of the true witness, that we would live by the faith of Jesus. I pray that your coming would be soon, and I pray that we would do everything we can through your grace and power to finish the work in this generation. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.